We turn this evening to Romans 3 and the verses that we read together from verse 13 to verse 20. And one of the key phrases in this section that we'll be thinking of this evening is in verse 19. Every mouth stopped. I read of a woman, it just happened to be a woman. Men do this as well. Uh, She got a speeding ticket. Uh, She was doing 37 mile an hour in a 30 mile an hour limit. And she decided to contest this speeding ticket because she believed there were mitigating circumstances uh, for the fine uh, that she was being asked to pay. And so eventually... Uh, her day at court came and she had thought out all the arguments which she was going to bring up in this court case. Uh, She had thought about having to do the school run that morning, thought about the the cloudy day which kind of affected her vision of the the signs. Uh, She thought of that important meeting that she had to get to which was in the, the public interest. She thought of all these lines of argumentation which she would present in defence of her actions. The moment came then. Her case was called and the judge read out the charge against her and asked her to respond. And in that moment, her moment, she said... I was silent. All those defensive arguments seeped away. I saw them in that moment for what they were, and I recognized my guilt just then. Every mouth stopped, and all the world guilty before God. We've been noticing in this pre-communion day the argument of the Apostle in chapter 3 verses 9 to 20 which I again encourage you to to memorise. The key phrase is verse 9 all under sin which we thought of this morning under its guilt It's power, it's punishment. And the Apostle has been building up his case, hasn't he, uh, to emphasize the universalness of sin. He has been looking at the person who has no Bible and no church, as we've been noticing and recognizing that they are without excuse. They have the revelation of God in creation, they know there's a God. They know right from wrong, he asserts, at the end of chapter 1. We've been learning that together and having insights into the, the true status of those who do not have church Bible or who've never heard the name of Jesus. He moves on then, as we have seen, to the moralist, the person who condemns the wrong in others, different uh, from that first person that we noticed in the chapter 1, this person speaks out against wrong in others, but in doing so, condemns themselves because they are not immune 
to those sins which others commit. And then he comes to the religious person, the person who has a Bible, the person who attends church, the person who hears the name of Jesus. And they approve of God's word and they teach God's word to the next generation and to the ignorant. But in doing that, they're condemning themselves because what they're teaching others to do, they cannot even do on their own. This is bringing him to this summation, this conclusion, all under sin. And the apostle, as he is prone to do in other letters, but not as extensively, is using this katana, this what the rabbis called string of pearls, citations from the Old Testament to buttress his position, to assert that this is found in the very words of the Holy God. This morning we have noticed that his emphasis in verses 10 to 12 is on all people. Five times he says, there is none. Once he says, all. All people. He he buttresses his assertion that we are all under sin, citing from Psalm 14 and from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. All under sin. Now he's looking at individuals in the next set of quotations. Verses 13 to 18. He's picking us out one by one and he's not looking at all people in this instance but at all parts of people. Showing us the the extensiveness of this universal sinfulness in each individual. We come to, to think of that this evening so he will come to that conclusion that we've mentioned. Every mouth stopped. And all guilty before God. Let's think of the extent of our sinfulness. Let's think of the emphasis of our sinfulness. Let's think of the establishment of our sinfulness. Let's think of the extent of our sinfulness. In verses 13 to 18, these citations. Now the the apostle has a connection in this string of pearls, in this katana, this form of rabbinic and uh, writings of of pulling together scriptural passages uh, to support a point. And and what connects these scriptural passages, I'm sure you've noticed and I've noticed many times you've read this, is is bodily parts. He he cites six bodily parts uh, in these verses to emphasise the, the extensiveness of human sinfulness doesn't just affect the tip of our nose or, or the lobe of our ear. It's right in our very essence, our being, this innate, fallen sinfulness. We use the phrase total depravity, not to describe that we are as bad as we could be, but to emphasize that every part of us is affected by sin, the, the total depravity. So here he is then, and he's pulling out quotations from the Psalms, from Isaiah, which we read, from the book of Proverbs in chapter 1, and he's linking them by various bodily parts to to emphasize 
or sinfulness. It's giving con- concrete expression uh, to that broad phraseology that he's used. All under sin. Well, well, how much under sin then, Paul? Tease it out for us. And he does that in verses 13 to 18 by citing the areas affected by us. Perhaps it will help you to, to remember the progression within his quotations. It's perhaps not straight jacking it, jacketing it that he looks first of all at words. And then he looks at deeds. And then he looks in the last citation. There is no fear of God before their eyes at thoughts. He's covering this whole range of human behavior in our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts. But he focuses and he begins with and he emphasizes our words. And that's the only area that we're going to to dwell on in this first point. Our words. And you can see that that there is a progression in the quotations that he has. The throat. And then the tongue. Then the lips. Then the mouth. There is a, a debate whether Paul borrowed this from someone else or whether he made this up himself as he dwelt in Corinth for those two months. And I favour the second that with great care and thoughtfulness as he paced the shores of that great city and looked out over the sea and, and, and went through the scriptures which he knew so well. He sets it out in this memorable fashion that people in Rome and we here in Newton Ars can carry this in our minds. This progression of words as we speak from our throat, through our tongue, to our lips, in our mouth. Thomas Schreiner says, universal sinfulness is nowhere more evident than in human speech. There's lots of things that we'll we'll never do with our hands. But most of us, Sin regularly with our mouth. James agrees with this, didn't it? We read it this morning. If a person can bridle his or her tongue, they control their whole person. First of all, then the throat, and this is a quotation from Psalm 5, verse 9. Their throat is an open grave. And two ideas are latent here, aren't they? The the stench originates from from something hidden, something beneath, something inside, and and then proceeds out. And this is emphasizing the corruption of our heart is evidenced in the the way we speak, in the, the wrongs that we say. But then it also has the idea of the detrimental impact of wrong words, of wrong speech. The influence it has, the effect it takes, their throat is an open grave. Interestingly, in Psalm 5 verse 9, 
The context is is not words of blasphemy. The context is not lying. The context of this quotation in in Psalm 5 verse 9, which is using this metaphor of an open grave to describe the the offensive, detrimental impact of, of wrong speech, is flattery. Praising someone up whom we hate in our hearts. It's like an open grave, the psalmist says. Doing such detrimental work. And we've done it. The tongue he moves on to, mentioned in Psalm 5, 9 and and Psalm 140, uh, verse 3 as well. Uh, The tongue, he, he says, is full of deceit. Footballers use their their limbs uh, to try to trick their opponents, the attacker against the defender, uh, doing the step overs and and all such things. But there's no bodily member which is devoted to deceit like the tongue. The half-truths, the white lies, the deceit that emanates from our tongue. The lips, he moves on from the throat to the tongue to the lips. Psalm 140, verse 3. Under their lips is the venom of asps. Uh, Boys and girls, you can look up uh, later on the the Egyptian cobra, uh, which rises up and and spits out uh, poison to great harm and and detriment of of its enemy. And this is the metaphor being used here of, of the hurtful words that are spoken by us, intended to harm and to injure and to leave permanent damage on those whom we speak them against. Here's the expression of human sinfulness. And each of us have been the recipients of this, haven't we? And in these moments, it rises up in our mind more than any physical injury, hurtful words that have been said to us 30 years ago. But each of us have been the origin of such hurtful words as well. As spouses, as parents, as siblings. Here's the expression of human sinfulness in our lips. Those hurtful, damaging terms that we use. And fourthly, mentions our mouth from Psalm 10 verse 7. Full of cursing and bitterness. Bitterness, a term which is used in the Bible in association with violence. Josephus used it of Herod in his last days when he realized that his illness was terminal, that he used this language which was associated with violence. The quotation is full of bitterness. It's not the occasional outburst, it's not the odd remark, but Universal sinfulness is expressed in a mouth which regularly declines into bitterness. We don't need to go any further, do we? 
We don't need to go on into the human action which the apostle then moves on to. We don't need to go on into the human mind, the source. And and Lloyd-Jones has a a wonderful sermon on this in his great set on Romans, emphasizing the 18th verse, no fear of God before their eyes. As the Old Testament, Paul here emphasizes this is where it all emanates from. We don't have to go there to feel the power of these words in our life and humble ourselves before Almighty God, that this universal sinfulness has reached us, our throat, our tongue, our lips, our mouth. And if you doubt it still, just listen to yourself. Then this week of pre-communion let's take some time to reflect on this focus of the apostle as he moves away from the the, the macro view into the the micro form of focusing on individuals on on you and I on, on these bodily parts let us acknowledge our failings in our speech let us repent to become positive And encouraging and complimentary in a real and true sense of others. So that when we take the cup on Sabbath morning and press it to our lips. And feel the bread on our throat. We will praise God that the work of Christ covers every sin of our speech. The extent of our sinfulness. Secondly, in verse 19, the establishing of our sinfulness. Paul's not superficial, is he? He takes his time. He he lingers on a point. We want to get to the good stuff, the the bright stuff in, in, in verse 21. And we'll come to that on Sabbath day. But Paul lingers, holds us in this thought. Of the the extensiveness of human sinfulness. And in verse 19, a very interesting verse, a very important verse, a a, a really powerful verse. Uh, He he moves on uh, the subject here. Talks about those who are under the law. And who are these people? And this has been discussed, and John Murray, whom we all love, don't we? He maintains that it's, this is everyone. So he refers back, you remember, to 2.15, where we talked about the moralist having the law written on their hearts, not in their hands in the Bible, but on their hearts by being made in the image of God. So he refers this phrase to the moralist and also to the religious person, those who have the law in their hearts and in their hands. But, but, we, but we would beg to differ from uh, this, this, this Mr. Murray uh, in this instance because the, the same phrase is used in chapter 2 and verse 12 of the Jews. In that verse, it's distinctly, this group is separated and distinguished from the Gentiles. So those who are under the law, we would argue, are, are the Jewish people. So there they are, the privileged ones, the chosen ones, 
blessed ones. This point seems to be this in verse 19. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The law here, it seems to refer to not the Ten Commandments so much, though that is included, but the verses we've just read. In verses 10 to 18, this katana of citation, he's using the phrase law here for the whole of the Old Testament. And he's saying that the law is speaking to those who are under the law. So these verses from the Old Testament showing the universal of sinfulness is speaking to those who have a Bible. Jungle Jim doesn't have the Bible. He isn't hearing this read to him every Sabbath day in the synagogue. But the religious person is hearing this law. So, whatever the law says, from Proverbs 1, from Psalm 10, from Psalm 5, from Psalm 14, From Isaiah 59, from Ecclesiastes 7, whatever the law says, this law that I've just cited, these quotations I've just cited, it's speaking to those who are under the law. And it's saying to those who are under the law, with all their privileges, with all their freedoms, with all their blessings from God, that every one of you is a sinner. Then he goes on to make his point. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. See his argument? The small sample of Jewish people chosen by God, privileged by God, given God's law, sent prophets sent visions. What more could he have done to them? And yet, they failed. They were guilty. They were sinful, as their law, which he's just quoted, says. And if those people cannot escape or avoid sinfulness, no one can. So that every mouth may be stopped. And that all the world would be guilty before God. The mouth stopped actively by the sinner before God. No argument, no excuse like the lady in the court for speeding or passively stopped by God that he won't allow any objections, any reasons, any comeback. Every mouth stopped before God. When you go for a blood test, they don't take all your blood out, do they? Take a sample in a syringe and they send it off to the lab and they test that and from that test they conclude you, you in your totality are ill or healthy. And so God has taken a sample of humanity privileged them and blessed them and yet all of them sinful so that all the world may be guilty before God. 
how blind is the world's religion, isn't it? Religions emphasizing human works, the five pillars of Islam, for example, teaching millions that by their efforts, their prayers, their fasting, their pilgrimages, their declaration of faith, their giving alms to the needy, they can earn their way into heaven. This has all been tested before. God has tried it with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He has tested it with the Jewish nation. Every mouth is stopped. And all the world guilty before God. We admire a trier, don't we? Someone who tries and fails. And they try again and fail. And they try again and fail. Until they succeed. We look back on the journey of the aeroplane. And to those initial testings and and attempts. and, And all the dangers involved. Trying and failing. Trying and failing. Until they succeed. And we admire such effort. But we despise such effort. When there is no possibility of succeeding. This verse is asserting that there is no possibility of you or I or anyone that will ever live or who has ever lived earning their own way to heaven. All are guilty before God. The extent of our sinfulness, the emphasis of our sinfulness Sorry, the establishment of our sinfulness. And lastly, the emphasis of our sinfulness in verse 20. The works of the law, a phrase used in Paul eight times, uh, discussed a lot by evangelicals. Some of you are, are very familiar with this, uh, I, I know. But the traditional reformed uh, position on this phrase is that it refers to human efforts to please God and to earn salvation and to merit forgiveness. And the apostle's assertion is extremely clear here. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We cannot do this. We cannot earn our salvation. And this is supporting his previous argument, the extent of human sinfulness, the establishment of human sinfulness by that sample God took, which proves that none of us can save ourselves. He puts it in black and white for us here. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Well, what's the point of the law, we ask? And he anticipates that question in his closing phrase, through the law come knowledge of sin. The law is not a ladder by which we climb to heaven. The law is a mirror by which we see our defects. That 100% which haunts students as they go through school and then university, which they aspire to, which they want to get close to and never can, which their marks will reflect their, their failings and shortcomings in. It's like God's law which we can never reach, which we can never attain unto, which we can never fully fulfill. 
We take our fork and we don't stir our coffee with it. We take our knife and we don't sup our soup with it. We take our spoon and we don't hold our steak with it. They have a role. They have a function. They have a purpose on our meal table. And here, God's law, it's not for our salvation, but it's to show us our sinfulness. There's something incredibly comforting here, isn't there? For the 9% guy. And something incredibly humbling for the 90% woman. We recognize that there's degrees of sinfulness, don't we? That it's worse to murder than to hate. That it's worse to commit adultery than to have impure thoughts. That it's worse to be idolatrous than to have idols in our heart. That it's worse to steal than to covet. But the 9% guy sitting in his prison cell because he's murdered, because he's stolen, because he's committed adultery, because he's held idols, finds comfort in this. Some comfort. That even though he'd been a 90% guy, he would still be in the same boat. The 9% and the 90% are both people at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees at the cross ridiculing Jesus filled with hatred and the dying thief guilty of murder. Both at the opposite ends of the spectrum of the sixth commandment but both in the same boat by the works of the law. They could not save themselves. But either of them, or both of them, can be saved through Jesus Christ. The extent of sinfulness, the establishment of sinfulness, the emphasis of sinfulness. How brilliant it would be for us like Paul if for all our beliefs, for all our practices, we could cite scripture, cite it from memory. Cite more than one scripture. What an example he is here to us. This section challenges us for the depth of knowledge about the Psalms, doesn't it? We go to the Psalms for comfort. There are experiences there which resonate with us. And we find great help there for the emotion and for the experiences of suffering and pain. And yet here's the apostle and he's drawing this fundamental doctrine from the Psalms. The clinching statement of his doctrine is every mouth stops. And the crew of the Top Gun film. One person interviewed uh, remembers that on numerous occasions the director voiced an idea and then shot the idea down by saying we could never do that. And the crew member remembers that in that moment of unbelief Tom Cruise stepped forward and said, I can do it. 
Every mouth stopped. Every mouth. Except the mouth of Jesus. And he stands forward and he says to Almighty God, I am sinless. I am righteous. And I will come from heaven to earth to take the sins of all your people. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.